Well, good morning. We are looking this morning at one of my favorite passages of the Bible. In fact, I'll just say that uh, this was often one of those passages that when I was young, I would love reading, and I would oftentimes read a passage like this in lieu of actually paying any attention to the sermon. <laughs> I hope that you will not do that this morning. And as a warning, I will say that if you do that when you're young, maybe you'll be standing in my place in a few years. <laughs> but I love stories like this because it's a story of wars and battle, and you have four kings going to battle against five kings, and you have Abram uh, leading his men on another battle, which results in a victory. And, and as a young man, I loved reading stories like this. But as we look at this campaign of Abram, as he goes to rescue Lot, we see that the battle actually is a fairly minor part of this story, right? Uh, if you actually even just look at how much time is spent relating the account of these wars, well, we first get it set up. You see the geopolitical situation, right? Which kings are allied with which and where they are. But then once Abram hears of the defeat of the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that his nephew has been captured, the rescue actually occupies a very short part of the narrative. And really, this entire conflict primarily sets the stage for a very intriguing meeting. And that meeting is between Abram and the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And so uh, let's turn together and look at this passage. And what we'll see here is not only an exciting account of a war and a victory, but also some very important principles that Abraham lives by and which also will serve to guide us today. Let's pray. Most High God, Lord of heaven and earth, as we read this morning and come to this story of your servant Abram and how you led him and taught him and blessed him so that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, so that those would come to you and be your people, and bless Abram and his family, would be blessed by you. And likewise, that those who would curse Abram and set themselves up against you and raise their hands against you will suffer defeat. Help us as we come to this passage this morning to see how we might take a lesson from the life of Abram. How the God who kept his word so many years ago is still keeping that word today. And how we can be a light and a testimony to the world around us, even as Abram was a testimony in his time, in his day, a testimony that resounds to this present day. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 
And so what is the story that God is telling here? He's telling the story of his work of redemption. And in a sense, this is a continuation and a development of that idea that Abram will be a blessing. In fact, God's means of blessing to the world. So that those who would bless Abram would be blessed by God. And those who would curse Abram would be cursed by God. And we see now how this covenant of God with Abraham would begin to infect the entire world. And this perspective of the world is very different than how we would see the world presented today, right? I mean, you think about how the news is presented to us. We have all the movers and shakers and the presidents and the dictators who make these world-shaking decisions that, in a sense, kind of govern how our world will go. We see this today with different dictators initiating wars and making decisions that affect the lives of millions. And yet I wonder if God might have a different perspective. Because we see that here there are these kings who rule the entire land around where Abram and Lot are living. And yet the way that God tells this story tells a much different perspective. Because it is God's hand that is working here. And it is God who determines what is going to happen. And what is important here and what God desires to relate through this narrative would be very different than what ABC, NBC News would report if they were reporting on this conflict today. And so at the beginning of chapter 14, we see the geopolitical situation laid out. There are these kings who have defeated the rulers of the cities around where Abraham and Lot are living, and they have been collecting for 12 years a tribute from these kings that they have defeated. But it says in uh, verses 4 and 5, 12 years they had served Kedolaomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in ashtaroth Kemayim the Zuzim in Ham, the Anim in Sheveh, Keriathim, and the Horites in their hills country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. And so what is going on is these five kings that had at one point in time been defeated by their enemies now have rejected their rule. And you see that those four kings, it took them a year perhaps to gather their armies together, uh, these four kings in alliance, and they come and they're defeating all that land again. They're resubjugating the territory so that they can continue to collect the tribute. And we see that the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, along with three other kings, uh, then go out to battle against these four kings. And they're defeated. And so for their trouble, they have now been resubjugated. Their people are being carried off and they themselves are captured. And verse 12 tells us that along with these kings, also Lot, probably because of his prominence in the area, he was now a man who had substantial possessions, and probably he and all his possessions 
have been captured and they are also being carried off. And then what we saw in our reading today is one person escaped and he comes and he tells Abram. And now Abram gathers together the men of his household and some of the rulers or families around him who are willing to accompany him to go off and to rescue these captives. And so we might make a few notes about uh, what's going on in how the setting is being set here. Probably Abram and his men and those of his allies are probably much fewer than those kings who had gathered together their armies and had come and defeated the rulers of these cities. Probably also when we read about these trained men in Abram's household, we're talking about those who had been watching his flocks and serving in his household. And what it means by trained is probably they at some point in time had done some drills together, but probably nothing at all like the trained armies we have today, and probably not even like what these kings who had gathered their armies to come and defeat these other kings had. And so they're going up probably against greater numbers and a more professional army. What we also see, though, is that Abram has had perhaps a more salutary, uh, a better relationship or a more healthy relationship with his neighbors than Lot had had with his. Because uh, as we'll see soon and has already been hinted by as Lot makes his decision about where he's to live, Lot's kind of dragged down into the lifestyle and in, into the prosperity of those around him. But we see that with Abram, that his neighbors, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner are willing to go with him in this battle to rescue Lot. And so we see here, in terms of what is the story of what's going on here, how is God's story of redemption, and what is the story that God is telling that would be very different from how we would look at a story like this, or how the news agencies of our day would look at a story like this. Because what God's narrative here is he's trying to show how this plan of redemption that was promised all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, as we were looking at at the beginning of this year, and how that work of redemption had come to focus on a particular man and his family, and how now this man and this family were walking along with God and would become part of that story of redemption. How does one become an instrument of God's redemption? And that is the narrative that is being developed here in Genesis. And that's what's central to the story. And so, if, you know, we were looking at it from a new standpoint, we would be looking at these kings and who's allied with who and, and what treaties were made with who and, and looking at the story from that viewpoint. But from the viewpoint of God, what he is showing us is how redemption unfolds. How will it that God will redeem this world? And how is it that this man Abram, becomes an instrument of God for the redemption of all these people. And one very important thing that we see here is that God, in using Abram and his family in his plan of redemption, is working alongside Abram. What's very important in this story, as we've been going through these chapters, is how does the character of Abram develop? because we will see that this is the consistent pattern of God. 
throughout the history of redemption. God, one of the things that Irene and I, my wife Irene and I have been talking about quite a bit in the last couple of weeks is God doesn't use people. I mean, we often pray that, right? God, would you use me to accomplish such and such a thing? And I'm not saying that that's wrong in a certain sense. But God does not use us as tools in the sense that we're no more than tools. But what God does is he establishes relationships. He cares about people. And in particular, he cares about their character because it is in his expression of love for them. And it is in his people's learning to trust in him. And it is in their faithfulness that God's work of redemption happens. Because at the end of the day, that's what redemption is. It's the restoration of that relationship through the growth and the character of God's people as they become conformed to his own image. So that the image of God that all humanity was created with is restored to them so they become who they ought to be. And this is the story that God focuses on in the other fun story of war and battle and victory and conquest. It is the establishment, the development, the nurture of the character of Abraham or Abram at this point in time that God is concerned with. And so here, Abram defeats those kings and he brings back all the possessions of the defeated kings, likely also the booty that he would have conquered or uh, obtained in defeating Kedolamer and Lot and all his possessions. And so that's kind of what's going on at the beginning of the story, setting the stage. Here's this geopolitical situation and these kings who have rebelled against other kings. But that's mostly to tell us who's on what side and what relationship that they have with Lot and especially with Abram. And after he defeats those kings, now we come to this passage that we read together this morning in our scripture reading. And this is, in a sense, the focus of this narrative. And it's highlighted by the contrast between these two kings who come out and meet Abram. And it's set up in a particular kind of structure, which highlights the nature of how God blesses through his relationship with people. And so looking at verse 17, we read, after his return from the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Now, just a note on how we look at these place names, and you'll see a lot of them earlier on in the passage. Uh, part of the reason for that is you can see that this would have been, at the time, a historical writing. So Moses, as he is recording this down for the Israelites, as they are themselves coming into the land, would have seen this story, and this story would have had a particular import for them. This is what your ancestor Abraham did. This is how God worked through him for the blessing of the people around him. And the very natural application, 
how is it that you are to come into the land and to be a blessing to the people around you? Which makes a very easy application to us today. How do we as the people of God, his church, a light on a hill, how are we to be a blessing to the people around us and a light of the gospel to those around us? And so, uh, oh, but how we see that is because all the names are updated. You notice that through, as you read through this passage, it says, you know, uh, Zoar, which uh, at one time was uh, Bella, that is Zoar. What you see here, I mean, for us, this doesn't make any sense because we don't know where Bella was and we don't know where Zoar is. But for the people who are coming back into the promised land, as, as, as Moses was writing this for the Israelites, what he is doing is he, he is relating the contemporary place names to the historical names in the narrative. Um, and so we see that this story is meant to be a lesson. This is meant to have a teaching function for the people of God. But here we have the meeting of the king of Sodom and the meeting of Melchizedek, king of Salem, with Abram. And this meeting is set up in a kind of a chiastic structure. What, it, what is a chiastic structure? So the Greek word chi uh, is in the form of an X. And what it does is it, it's kind of like a, uh, what do you call it, a um, symmetrical sort of presentation, which highlights the thing that comes in the center. And so what you see here is that the king of Sodom comes to meet Abram, and so does the king of Salem. But the king of Sodom is in one sense banished to the periphery of this narrative. And it's Abram's meeting with Melchizedek that is highlighted by this, because it's first the king of Sodom that comes, and then the king of Melchizedek, but I mean, the king of Salem, who is Melchizedek, and then the king of Sodom is set aside. And Abram has this uh, interaction uh, with the king of Salem, and then it is only after Abram's dealing with Salem are concluded that he comes back the king of Sodom. But let's look at what this contrast is that is highlighted. And so when these two kings come, Melchizedek in the narrative displaces the king of Sodom. And in verse 19, it says that the king of Salem, Melchizedek, blesses Abram and says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then in return, with the blessing of God coming to Abram, Abraham then turns to the king of Salem and gives him a tenth of everything. Now, if you are familiar with your scriptures and you know that this, this uh, narrative comes up again in the New Testament in Hebrews, and there's a particular lesson that's drawn. And um, if you look at Hebrews 7, you see that Melchizedek then serves as this type for the Savior who is to come. Uh, one of the things that we can draw from that is that Melchizedek does stand for God himself. He is a representative of God in this narrative. Now, we're not going to draw all the same things that, we, that the author of Hebrews does because we don't have Psalm 110. Uh, the writer of Hebrews takes Psalm 110 and the prophetic utterance there and combines it with this narrative to do an amazing job of exegesis that you will never hear from this pulpit because uh, I'm just not inspired in the same way as the writer of Hebrews. Um, but what is the function in this narrative apart from that prophetic utterance 
you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We see here a particular type of relationship established between Melchizedek, who's king of Salem, and how that relationship, in a sense, stands for the relationship between God and Abram. Melchizedek is king of Salem, which is most likely Jeru Salem. So this is a forerunner of the, of, of, uh, the later Jerusalem. And Melchizedek is told to us to be a priest of God Most High. And he gives to Abram a blessing. And this blessing is an echo of the covenant and the promises that God has already made to Abram. And he reminds Abram that his blessing will come from God. His victory has come from God. And Abram responds to this by giving him a tithe, a tenth of everything. And you look at the contrast of this with what happens with the king of Sodom. Because what happens with Sodom? Sodom comes and he tells Abram, you keep all the stuff, just return the people to me. Now, in one sense, Abram's already entitled to that, right? Because the kings that had defeated the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah had already taken the possessions and they had brought into captivity the people. Now, Abram has gone and defeated Ketolamer. And, and, and his allies. And so what does that make Abram? Well, now he's the conqueror, right? And so all the booty really, in a sense, uh, in their culture, belong to Abram. And so in a sense, the king of Sodom here is trying to strike some sort of deal with Abram. You know, like, let me have the people back. You keep all the possessions. And what Abram does here is very curious because he rejects that. Now think about what they've done in order to get that. Abram and his men have gone to fight a numerically superior army, and one that would have been better trained. He's going up against the odds, in a sense. Uh, for him to even undergo this, there had to be a certain amount of faith on his part. But now, after having gone and won that improbable victory, He's rejecting any of the profit that would have come along with it. And in fact, what profit that he would have gotten in terms of having defeated Ketelamer and looted his army, he's turning a tenth of that over to the king of Salem. But in terms of the great amount of wealth that they had been carrying off, that these kings had come to the promised land to conquer and to bring back, Abram is rejecting all of it. Why would Abraham do this kind of thing? And we see the principle that Abram is following in verse 22 and 23. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. What is the principle that Abram is following here? What was it that God had said to him? Through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. If Abram had kept the loot, 
would have done nothing wrong. He would simply have been following the culture of his time. He would have been doing what was culturally acceptable. But God had told Abram, your function, the purpose to which I call you here, is very, very different. You are not here to exploit the people of this earth. Instead, your function is to be a blessing and a testimony of me to them. If Abram had taken this, he would have been acting in a way that was contrary to his calling from God. Do you see that? Because Abram's supposed to be a blessing to all the nations, not looting all the nations. And so his prosperity, his well-being, his blessing, what he wanted was for that to be a clear testimony to Yahweh. And he did not want that to be compromised in any way by taking the riches of the king of Sodom. Well, think about how our culture functions today. In a sense, we're all engaged in kind of a struggle, right? Uh, just as Abram engaged in this war. We're trying to establish ourselves in a certain way upon this earth. And there's lots of gatekeepers in our culture, aren't there? I remember when I graduated from law school, one of the things that I was trying to do is I was trying to get a job with a um, private law firm because private law firms pay more than businesses. Your hours are way worse. Uh, so for those of you going to law, that's the ch choice you kind of make. If you go to work for a company, you have much more regular hours. You maybe even work a nine to five kind of job. You might have to work longer on occasions. If you go to work for a private firm, minimum 60 hours a week going up to 80, 100, 120. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of hours you'll be working. But when I was interviewing with these different law firms, so I graduated at a time, uh, those of you who are like around my age, you'll remember certain legal shows were very popular at that time. And so law school admissions had boomed. And it was at that time really hard to find a, a job in the legal market. I had written, I've got this. Uh, if any of you ever come to my home, you can ask me, I can show it to you. I've got this filing kind of uh, case where I filed all the letters that I had sent to all these different law firms trying to get a job. I've got around 250 letters, uh, rejection letters. <laughs> and there's gatekeepers, right? Because in a sense, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get my foot in the door. And I'm telling these people, if you hire me, I'll come in and I'll work a lot of hours. I'll work hard and you'll make money from the labor that I'll give you. And part of the difficulty is anytime you bring someone in, this is not just in law, but almost any occupation, is there's a, there's a steep learning curve, right? And so the first year that someone comes and works in an area, unless they already have a lot of experience, you have to train them. And so it's kind of hard to get your foot in the door, but the idea is if you can, uh, what the employer is looking for is they're looking for someone who will come, who will learn, who will work hard, and who will stay at least for a while. Because after that first year, once the person's trained, now you're starting to make, especially in the legal field, a ton of money off of them. And if they stay for five to seven years, you'll make a lot of money off of them. And then you come to a decision point. So this is a little bit about the legal field, which is if you keep them, now you have to make them a partner. 
And now they start collecting a lot of money too. So there's kind of like this back and forth trade-off. It's a deal with the world. And what you're trying to do is show the partners of the firm that it's worth it for them. And they're trying to show you on the flip side that it's worth it staying with them. So work hard, stay here, and eventually it'll really pay off. And this is back and forth deal with the world. And that's a lot like what we see here in this passage, right? Because there's a way to prosperity in this world. And with a certain amount of God-given talent, with a certain amount of work, you can achieve a certain standing. Now, a number of you are in university right now. And some of you probably think you're working pretty hard. <laughs> you will work harder. <laughs> but there's a choice that you need to make. Because what's being offered to you if you're in school and if you're pursuing a career is that it could pay off big for you. And sometimes the bigger the risk you take, the harder you work, the, the more you can make. What do we want the world around us to see as the source of our blessing? What is it that we want to see, them to see that we are trusting? What is the important thing to us? What are we striving after? And you see what Abram was doing here when the king of Sodom had come to him, and the king of Salem had come to him. What he, the principle that he was trying to follow is, I am to be a blessing to the nations around me. And a big part of that blessing is, they must see who I trust. Who is my foundation? Because from a worldly sense, what Abram does here makes no sense. Because he's giving up what he could have gotten. And then he's giving up what he has gotten. He's giving a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. And what does he get back? God promises him a land. When does Abram get that land? He dies before he gets that land. But he's promised your descendants will have it. When does he get that descendant? He still doesn't have it here in chapter 14. God makes him wait till he's older than anyone in this room. And we have some old people here because my parents are here. <laughs> They're getting close to 90. Abram's older than that, and he has no descendant. You see what's going on here? There is certainly the development of that character in Abram. And Abram is learning to trust God. And he's trusting by faith for what he will not even see in his lifetime. Because by faith, he has come to trust that God is his security. God is his foundation. God is his blessing. And what is there for his taking, but would compromise the testimony that Abram would be before God, he will not reach out his hand and take it. He's doing the opposite of that, that uh, proverb that we all talk about, right? A bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. And what Abram says is that bird in the hand of God is worth all 
the birds that I could have right now. How are you going to live your life? When we read the Word of God, we see promises here. And we see a certain kind of calling. But that calling is going to cost each and every one of you. We are living in a culture today which is turning ever further away from God. And what I've already seen in my lifetime is as Christians, you will be marginalized in this culture. Your beliefs, your values will become increasingly unpopular in a culture that is turning away from God. And I would say that that unpopularity will come from both the right and the left in our culture. Who are we going to be as a church? What does it mean to prosper as a church? What I hope that we will become as a church is a church that is faithful to God, a church that trusts in the promises of God and without compromise lives according to the principles of God. That might mean that we become more marginalized here in our community. That might mean that we don't grow as a church the way that we might if we embraced methods of church growth that would reach out to popular culture. But will we be faithful? Some of you may remember the vision statement we have for this year that really, I would say, is something that we want to strive to continue to live by, uh, not just this year, but as the foundation of who we are as a church. And let me read that to you. Uh, we have this neat poster that you're going to start seeing around the church because this is actually our focus for this year. Uh, this poster was made by the contribution of some of the talents of the very gifted, uh, some of the gifted ladies in our church. We strive by the mercy of God to be a church established upon the word of God, living under the authority of God that we might stand upon his promises and delight ourselves in him. This is basically what Abram is doing in this passage. He is saying, God will be my blessing. And I will trust by faith the blessing of God that will come to me is greater than what I could have here. And this is what I hope as a church we can be faithful to. Will we pay close attention to every word that is written in the word of God? Will we strive to live faithfully? And if we do this, just like Abram, there will be those also who will stand with us. There's a great church just down the street from us, uh, Three Rivers, and the pastor there and I are getting to know each other, and hopefully we'll be able to work together on some things. Uh, this last week, a number of us went down to C4, and you know that a number of the new members of this congregation have come to us from that church, and hopefully that's a relationship that can grow and develop and that we can strengthen one another as a church. Next week, uh, I won't be here because I'll be down at PCCO, our sister church, planted from this church about 20 years ago, and we're hoping that we can develop some of those relationships. But can we stand together with the people of God Stand as a witness to him. Live faithfully without compromising what God has revealed to us in his word. And this culture will challenge us. And the gatekeepers of this world will tempt us. 
Now, we want to help you as a church. One of the things that we're going to be doing this summer is a Sunday school, which will be focused on dealing with some of the current hot issues in our culture. And what we want to do is help you see and process these issues in a biblical way. We know that there's a lot of things going on that we have to struggle with thinking, how do we deal with this as Christians? These issues concerning gender and sexuality, the ethnic struggles that we have, the tragedy, the ongoing tragedy of abortion, which continues. Um, but one of the things that we want to do as a church is to equip you to stand faithfully, without compromise, on the Word of God. And our hope is that, like Abram, that without compromise, people will see that we are trusting for our future, for our blessing, in what God has promised, rather than what this world can give us. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the example of Abram, who declined